Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. The following is a re-edited and ad-free presentation of episode 25 of the Read to Lead podcast, a conversation with author August Turek. The argument that I am making throughout the book is that the more successfully you forget yourself and your selfish motivations, the more successful you will be in life, both professionally and personally. Welcome to the Read to Lead podcast with Jeff Brown. Jeff believes that if you desire to achieve true success in business and in life, then consistent and intentional reading is a must. The Read to Lead podcast will not only help you narrow this ever important reading list, but also bring you key insights and valuable feedback from some of today's most successful successful and inspiring authors. And now here's Jeff. Hi there and welcome to the podcast that is dedicated to your personal and professional growth where we discuss leadership and all that is connected to it. Things like personal development, productivity, career, marketing, sales, entrepreneurship, and a lot more. And today we revisit a conversation with the author of a book called Business Secrets of the Trappist Monks, One CEO's Quest for Meaning and Authenticity. His name is August or Augie Turek. And August is going to help us understand how to apply service and selflessness in order to achieve true success. I want to give you a heads up that in the next couple of weeks, we'll be talking with author Amy Whitaker and her new book, Art Thinking. Our conversation with her, as well as her new book, will be released next week, July the 5th. And if you've ever written a book or desire to, you're going to want to be here for our conversation with Carrie Oberbrunner. This happens on July the 12th. And Carrie is going to help walk us through 18 different income streams that can be derived from writing a single book. In fact, Carrie has launched three six-figure businesses, all based on the last three books he has written. So nobody more than him an authority on this topic for sure. So again, that's coming up July the 12th. After a corporate career with companies like MTV, August Turek founded two highly successful software businesses. His essay, Brother John, won the $100,000 grand prize in the John Templeton Foundation's Power of Purpose essay contest. August has been featured in the Wall Street Journal, Fast Company, Selling Magazine, The New York Times, and Business Week, and is a popular leading contributor or leadership contributor, I should say, at Forbes.com. And he's the author of Business Secrets of the Trappist Monks, One CEO's Quest for Meaning and Authenticity. And we are excited to have him as our guest today on the Read to Lead podcast. August, welcome. I am so happy to be here, Jeff. Thank you so much. Well, I got to ask, how does a successful entrepreneur, former corporate executive, how do you end up working alongside the Trappist monks of Mepkin Abbey for 17 years? Well, you know, there's, there, I have two answers for that question, Jeff. The first answer is it's because I worked with the monks for 17 years that I did all those things. And, and I think that's a major, major theme of my book. 
I, this, is, this is not like something that I do in my spare time or it's a hobby. And this is the theme of the book. Trappist monks and, and Warren Buffett are not successful despite the fact that they live for, the higher, for higher values, but because they do. Mm. And so this, is the, you know, this has been the theme of my life. So yes, in, in one sense, before I met the monks, I'd already had a, a pretty successful career as a corporate executive. The actual way in which I met the monks was uh, I actually was coaching uh, college students um, on spirituality issues and moral issues and just, it's called the Self-Knowledge Symposium, and this was back in 1994, 96 actually, and uh, they, got, they got me to go skydiving with them. <laughs> and uh, I like to say that I was brave enough to jump out of an airplane, but not brave enough to tell these kids I was too old to be jumping out of airplanes. <laughs> I, I smashed my ankle to smithereens, two oh. compound fractures of the tibia and fibula. I wow. uh, ended up in the hospital for over a week. And at what I started experiencing panic attacks. And uh, long story short is when I got back out of the hospital, I felt like something deeply inside of me was broken. And, and um, I ended up, one of my other students called me from uh, uh, in that summer, a few months after that accident, and said, hey, I'm spending the summer at this Trappist monastery. I'm taking your advice. I said, what advice? He said, you told us to do something more important than just chase girls and drink beer all summer. <laughs> and so I'm spending my summer with these Trappist monks. And I said, wow, I need to come down there. And it just was spontaneous. So I, that very weekend, they invited me to come down. And I've been going back ever since. That was 17 years ago. And I attribute, uh, I speak about, I talk about this in my book, tell people a little more details about it. And I give the, I said, writing this book about the Trappist monks of Mepkin for me, what I owe them is not just the business success, but so much more because they were the ones that shepherded me through a very, very dark part time of my life. Well, you mentioned that you believe that if we take these lessons to heart, we'll enjoy a more meaningful and satisfying uh, personal life. So is your book a religious book necessarily, or would you say no? I would say that my book can be taken either way. I mean, I worked very, very hard, as I say in the preface to the book, to make sure that this is not religious in the sense that I don't require you to be a believer. I don't require you to be a Christian. I don't expect you to be a believer or a Christian. Again, the question would be, do you consider the movie The Matrix a religious uh, movie or not? <laughs> um, do, you, do you consider Groundhog Day a religious movie or not? Um, do you believe Star Wars is a religious movie? I mean, there's tons and tons of literature that has been written about Star Wars and those movies that I just mentioned and, and Truman Show and so many others where you, people take the religious truths and unpack them. On the other hand, there's millions and hundreds of millions of people that just go and sit back and see a sci-fi movie or a, or a fantasy or whatever they, they want to think it is. So I think my book is along, along those same lines. But what I really meant when I said, said that is that the entire hero's journey that I talk about so much in the book, which these movies, by the way, are all based on, is this movement from selfishness to selflessness. And the argument that I am making throughout the book, both in business and in your personal life, is that the more successfully you forget yourself and your selfish motivations, the more successful you will be in life. And that is both in business, professionally and personally. It is in our self-interest to forget our self-interest. Absolutely. We usually think that, you know, um, it's, that, it's, that this kind of is alien to a business environment. Um, but I like to point out that as a person, I'm a salesman. I came up through sales, um, eventually was vice president of sales and et cetera, and eventually ran, started a couple of sales driven companies. And every great salesman realizes at some point along the line that the more he successfully forgets himself, forgets his commissions, forgets his quota, forgets his numbers, forgets even his own product. 
and fanatically focuses on serving his customers' needs selflessly, the more product he moves, the more money he makes, the easier it is to make his quota. And I mean that. Let me go back. Forget your product. Because uh, I studied under Louis R. Mobley, who started the IBM Executive School in 1956. And he said we used to preach to the executives all the time. IBM doesn't sell drill bits. IBM sells holes. <laughs> Forget about the drill bits. Focus on the hole. What holes does the customer want? And once you understand what holes he needs, then help him craft the drill bit that he needs. But don't start going out there peddling drill bits. So let's look at leadership as another example. The uh, the task of leadership is not to make me successful. It's to make other people successful. The more successfully that I make other people successful, the faster I become successful. In sales, my success is a byproduct of the customer's success. In leadership, my success is a byproduct of someone else's success, the people that I'm leading. And this is true of corporations. The more successfully the corporations forget their profit motivation and focus on serving their customers, the more the profit will take care of itself. So you want to get a little religious here? <laughs> let's use it metaphorically or let's use it literally. You can choose. I'm agnostic about it. Seek first the kingdom of heaven and everything will take care of itself. Or what I am saying is seek first the kingdom of selflessness and everything else will take care of itself. The things that you think you want in life, the things that you think you need in life will be taken care of for you as a byproduct of your selflessness. And this is what I learned from the Trappist monks. Yeah, seek first the kingdom. That's Matthew uh, 6.33, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> Uh, in, in chapter two, you say that, that what we really want from our lives is, is transformation. Uh, I think one of the monks called it transcendence. And, and that if we want in our organizations the kind of employee engagement and customer loyalty that we see at Mepkin Abbey, then we have to be able to offer people the chance to satisfy this hunger for transformation. So what does applying that monastic model then look like for organizations? Um, I believe that all human motivation can be uh, mapped onto a hunger for transformation. And all of life is a longing. Every acorn's longing to be transformed into a, an oak. An acorn does not learn to be an oak. <laughs> an acorn is transformed into an oak. And so all of human motivation is a longing for a transformation. Now, there's three types of transformation, however. When a thirsty man drinks, he transforms his condition. When a poor man hits the lottery, he transforms his circumstance. And when Mr. Scrooge wakes up on Christmas morning, an utterly new man, he has experienced a transformation of being. So all three of these transformations are necessary for life. You know, when we're hungry, we need to eat. When we're, you know, when you have uh, four or five kids, then you need a bigger house. Um, but we're, but often what's neglected is we don't even understand that we're really ultimately longing for this transformation of being, which I define as a transformation from selfishness to selflessness, as is Mr. Scrooge. And if you look at every religious model, for example, whether it's a Buddha or Jesus or whatever, what are they all preaching? Selflessness. So in all these heroic tales are heroic tales of, of uh, you know, even even Groundhog Day is a story of the transformational journey of Bill Murray being transformed from a selfish, you know what, SOB <laughs> into a selfless human, level, loving human being. And we flock to these movies. So this is a universal drive. 
Now, my point is, is that what, where we go wrong is that we try to substitute uh, transformations of circumstance or transformations of condition for the transformation of being that we really want. So we use comfort food to f- try to fill the hole in our soul and we don't, we just get fat mm-hmm. and we try to use power or, you know, take, for example, the, the need for fame. Uh, I think people who are longing or, or have too great a, a need for fame um, are really thinking deep down inside that if I could just change everyone's opinion of me, that would somehow change me. That would give me the transformation of being that I really want. Well, of course, they find out that that doesn't happen. And at the same time, they need to keep up the pretext. They have to keep playing the role that got them the fame in the first place. And they kind of feel like phonies deep inside. I think this is one of the reasons why celebrities so often self-destruct. So I think what we have to do, first of all, intellectually, is acknowledge that there is this longing for a transformation of being. And what I illustrate in the book is what I call transformational organizations. And transformational organizations are super successful because they offer people this opportunity for a transformation of being. Uh, the monastery is one. The uh, Alcoholics Anonymous is another super successful organization. The Marine Corps, uh, Louis R. Mobley's IBM Executive School was a 12-week spirit. You know, he even admitted it to me when I finally met him. He had already retired from IBM. He said, I didn't use the word. He said, but my 12-week IBM Executive School was a spiritual boot camp. Well, related to that, uh, you share this your personal story of, of uh, being on this high at this Rolling Stone concert. I thought this was a great story and kind of uh, how you responded to that after after that high was over. Can you share a little bit of, of that? Well, you know, this is uh, when I was 19, in 1972, I was, I was 20 years old. I was huge. You, me and all my friends, we were huge Rolling Stones fans. And through some hustle and some pure luck, we ended up with uh, f- uh, four uh, tickets to the um, – Rolling Stones concert, front row seats. Mm. And I actually uh, um, went out and bought an Uncle Sam hat to wear to the concert because Jagger had worn a similar hat in the previous concert. His Get Your Yaya's Out tour was the previous concert tour. And um, so we were in the front row, and just before the concert started, um, a roadie walked out, and he leaned over, and he said to me, he says, Mick wants to wear your hat. <laughs> um, so he took my hat, and Mick Jagger wore my hat during the concert. And I was just absolutely uh, thrilled, uh, of course. I was so excited. And um, But after the concert, as I was walking with my friends back to my car, I realized that I was kind of let down and disappointed. And I couldn't figure it out. And as I say in the book, at the time, I didn't really want to figure it out because it was too disconcerting. But it was a vague sense of where do you go from here? Now what? After a glimpse of heaven, here I was back on earth. I was the same old schnook that I used to be, the same old guy, uh, a college kid with, uh, with trivialities to worry about, insecurities to worry about, um, all my, my personal problems to worry about, my future to worry about. And, and I realize now, in retrospect, that what I was expecting from that Stones concert was a transformation of being. I was expecting that it was going to lift me to a whole new level of being where everything was going to be different from now on. And of course, it, 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 what it was really was a transformation of condition. It was a momentary high. <laughs> it, was the, it was the thirsty man taking a drink. So I was really, really ended up disappointed. And I said that at the very time, I said, I think I noticed one of the reasons I was depressed as well, is I think I sensed through a glass darkly 
that this eager anticipation followed by inevitable disappointment might very well become the pattern of my life. Mm. And, I, and it did. It did. Um, I chased all kinds of goals and money and, and things like that. And, and I would get them and it would be great for a day or so. And then I'd have that same kind of, now what? Where do you go from here? And then some years later, I know you ended up uh, consulting for a company called Yext, and I love uh, the case study that you share in Chapter 3, particularly the story of how you managed to turn things around with the help of this uncoachable, quote-unquote, guy named Alan. Can, can you share a bit about that? Well, this, this really goes back to the, the, the previous story is that, is that uh, eventually I figured out, thank, thank God, and I think literally thank God, <laughs> that as a friend of mine said, you know, the problem that runs to so many people in business is that you spend all your time climbing the ladder only to realize that it's up against the wrong tree. So eventually I figured out that it was a transformation of being and it was with the monk's help. And this really radically changed my mind and changed how I ran business. So when I was at this company Yext a few years ago, I was working with their sales force. They had 50, 60, 70 salespeople working for them. And their number one salesman was this guy, Alan. And I had him in a, I put a small group together in order to just run some tests on some different ideas, different products, different price points, things like that. But he was a really pushy, really arrogant, really uncoachable. I consider him completely and utterly uncoachable. Mm. He and I butted heads. And I eventually went to the president and I said, you know, I've tried everything. I don't understand why I can't reach this guy. And the, and the president said, don't worry about him. But fundamentally, he's an SOB, but he's, he, you know, it was longer conversation than this, but he, he's an SOB. Nobody likes him. He's not going anywhere in the company, but he's our SOB and he can sell. <laughs> so we all work around him, you know, mm. but I really felt kind of, um, I didn't like that. I just didn't like the fact that, that I, and deep down inside, I was blaming myself. So what happened is that I had actually engineered this idea that we could introduce this new, this new product, or it was actually a, a, a fee for services, um, and we could start adding it on. And they didn't like it. The sales force didn't like it. It was going to be a raise in prices. It was going to be one more step in the close. They weren't going to be getting any more money for it. So I was having some real difficulty. And finally, one of the sales reps, uh, a woman named Amy, was really negative, and I jumped her a little bit. And, and uh, so the next day, she was not speaking to me. And I tried to approach her a couple of times, and I still couldn't get her to speak to me. So I thought, wow, I don't know why I did it, but it was just an instinctive move. I went to this guy, Alan, and I said, and he, and I, he could, as soon as he looked at me, you know, I could see he didn't like me, and his shoulders hunched. And, but I said to him, Alan, I said, I need your help. And his eyes got real wide, and I, he said, what? what? And I said, I, I, I made a mistake. I, 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 got, I got short with Amy, and now she's not speaking to me. And could you do me a favor? Uh, could you go and tell her that I like her and I'm sorry and, and everything? And his whole face just lit up like a Christmas tree. And he slapped me on the shoulder. You know, he's only 23 years old. He slaps me on the shoulder and he says, don't worry, Aug, I got your back. <laughs> and, and it was like a break in our, in our relationship. So the next day, she's um, very nice to me. And so I buy him a bag, a box of pretzels. And, but then when we launched the new, uh, you know, people talk a lot about, uh, about corporate executives having a lot of authority. But fundamentally, in our day and age, persuasion is so important. And you can't just run people. And so I was really, really nervous about the launch of this, my new idea that I'd brought out for the company. Yes, it had a, a, a chance to make the company millions of dollars, which it did. But if the sales 
force turned on it because I knew they weren't too happy about having this extra work, et cetera. If they collectively went on strike, then I would be to blame, not them. You know, they wouldn't say, we'll fire the whole sales force unless you do what Augie tells you to do. <laughs> that isn't going to happen. <laughs> um, so when we first started out for the first, the first morning we started, and again, it's with well, this great big pit with 70 salespeople and it all basically kids just out of college a couple of years. And there's all this noise because there's 60 or 70 going at once, all on the phones, all talking. When suddenly, I uh, just started about five minutes, 10 minutes into the process, when suddenly this girl stands up, throws her headphones on the ground, shrieks out at the top of her lungs that she just lost a sale she'd been working on for two months because of the changes that Augie had just put in place. And she wasn't that nice about it. She didn't call it the changes Augie put in place. <laughs> but I will, I, I will leave the expletives out of it. And... Uh, and so she sits down and she basically broke into tears and suddenly everything stopped. There was not a sound. The tension started to build as the Russians say you could have hung an ax on it. <laughs> and I thought, oh my God, this is going south fast. I got to do something. But even though I had 30 years of sales experience and management experience, I didn't know what to do. And I was frozen. I was watching all this from the door of my office and they didn't even know that I was watching them. Suddenly out of nowhere, this guy um, Alan appears and, and sits down and starts, uh, helping this, this girl and saves the sale for him. And the punchline of all this is that only a few days before this, he had come because I had reached out to him. He had come to me privately and he had said, Augie, you know, I know I'm, um, you know, with tears in his eyes, he said, I know that, uh, that nobody likes me. I know I've got this arrogant personality. I know I'm stubborn. I know I'm thick headed. Uh, could you help me? And we had just recently started meeting every night. And so here was the fruit of this. Mm. So he came out, he's talked to the girl, he sat down, he got to put the headphones on, he went back to the customer, he saved the sale, he gave her a hug and just humbly walked back to his desk all the way on the other side of the office, not knowing that I was even watching. And so for a second or two, everything just hung and then everybody went back to work. So not only did Alan with that one gesture of service and selflessness, help this girl get back her sale and all that stuff. But in one fell swoop, he, he proved to everybody in that room, 70 other salespeople, that this was doable, that this was no big deal, that let's just do it. And that was, and we never had another problem with the sales force after that. And the whole new product launch that I had engineered went through flawlessly. The company ended up making millions of dollars on a monthly basis because it was recurring revenue. And I looked back on that later and I said, wait a second, you know, it was my ability or my willingness to reach out to him and admit that I had been wrong and to ask for his help that created the circumstances where he in turn felt he could show his vulnerability to me. And it was, and he had then said he wanted a transformation of being. He didn't want a transformation in his sales skills. He didn't want to learn a few more tips from me. He wanted to become a different kind of person completely. And it was his longing for that transformation, the opening between the two of us that led to him helping this, this, this girl, which led to the company making millions and millions of dollars. This isn't some kind of uh, arcane, uh, you know, tree hugging kind of stuff. <laughs> this is an example of, of where my example and, and the, the help that the monks had given me, the way in which they had transformed me and my leadership model and my leadership style ended up helping one person and that one person you know, made millions and millions of dollars for a company. 
So um, this is real stuff. And he put a picture of you on his desk. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, that happened. So I, I, st- I was there for another four or five months or something like that. Then my contract was over, and they threw me this really, really nice party, and uh, and I was really moved. There were so many, so many of the uh, people, the young people, came over and, and told me that they had appreciated what I'd done. And then uh, Alan and I, by that time, were really good buddies, and we spent most of the time hanging out together, laughing about how we hated each other when we first started. And <laughs> And uh, so then he left and I said goodbye to him. And then the president tapped me on the shoulder and he said, you know, I, I walked past his desk yesterday and he has a, a picture of you pinned to the back of his desk. The president said, I asked him why. And he said, because I want to always be reminded of the person I'd like to be someday. There's no better compliment you can receive from someone you're mentoring. But you know, the thing that I noticed, you know, Jeff, that I, that I, that, that I, that I, again, this goes back to the monks and and what I, and my other teachers that helped me so much, I have real. I realized in in recollecting over all this and eventually writing it down that I get. I was getting the whole time I was at Yex. I, my joy was in seeing other people succeed. I was getting so much more pleasure out of their success, and this was not the this transformation in me um, had made me so much more successful. Because the other kicker that, of course, I end that chapter with is that I ended up walking away from Yext with uh, 200,000 shares of stock, uh, options on 200,000 shares of their stock at 40 cents a a share. And interestingly enough, I talked to the president just last week, and he said that my stock is probably worth $15 a share. Now, it's still a private company. (laughs) Wow. But they're probably worth $15 a share. So... um, so I, I end that chapter in my book by saying the less I care about money, the more money I seem to make. And the point being that the more my pleasure comes from seeing other people become successful, the more successful I become. Mm-hmm. Seek first the kingdom. Everything else will happen to you as a byproduct. Uh, and the, the ser- service leads to a byproduct of success for you. Would you say that of all the leadership lessons you've learned, Augie, that that, that one uh, is is the most important? Oh, absolutely. You know, absolutely. To me, um, I, but I, I think that the most important lesson that I have learned about leadership and about business generally really goes has its seeds, at least, or its genesis going all the way back before the monks to uh, Louis R. Mobley, who um, was the the guy who started the IBM Executive School in 1956 and ran it till 1966. And I like to tell the story about how I met him because during my 20s, I used to travel around the country and everywhere I went, I always looked for people that could help me become a better human being. I wasn't looking for, I wasn't even in business at the time and I wasn't even imagining a business career. Um, I was interested in spirituality. I was interested in philosophy. and But what I developed a habit of doing is going to pro, uh, bookstores and asking the owner. Back in those days, there were bookstores with owners. They weren't chains. <laughs> and I'd ask the owner for the coolest people in town. And who could I learn from? Who could teach me something? And I was in a bookstore in Washington, D.C., and he gave me the, the name of this guy, Louis Mobley. That's all I knew. He said, this guy's cool. Call him up. I called him up, told him when I was, I just wanted, I heard he was cool and he might be able to tell me something about life. And he said, come on out. And he invited me out. And it turns out he lives on this big estate outside of Columbia, Maryland. It turns out that he's the founder of the IBM Executive School, ran it for 10, 10 years. He's now retired. He ends up, we, st- we sit up all night long talking about everything from NATO to Plato. Hmm. And 
before you know it, I end up moving into his house as his protege and living with his family. And he's teaching me and everything. But what he kept, what he told me was the essence of what he learned uh, in the IBM executive school. He almost failed when he first started the IBM executive school because he thought that leadership was a function of skills and knowledge that you could come up with a list of skills. And if you imparted those skills, you know, in other words, you know, uh, supervisors type 30 words a minute, middle managers type 60 words a minute. Executives just got type ninety words a minute, <laughs> uh, you know. Um, and he made the mistake of thinking that, that he could that that's what it was. He said, "What makes great leaders is not skills and knowledge, but values and attitudes." The great revelation that has continued ever since then from talking to him is it's your character that matters. Mm. You know, there's a great um, a quote. I've tried to find the source of it, but it seems to be anonymous. What's your thoughts? Because they. Uh, because they become your actions. Watch your actions because they become your habits. Watch your habits because they become your character. And watch your character because it becomes your destiny. And when I read about people like John Adams or, or, or Tolstoy or George Washington, all these people, Link, Abraham Lincoln, you realize that they, you know, John Adams, for example, used to keep a list of his character traits that he was working on in his pocket. You know, I talk too much. I don't listen enough or whatever. And Tolstoy did the same thing. And so t- what's most important is, your, is the kind of human being you are, the character that you have. I gave a speech last week about that to a community college and, I, and I, all these people at this community college. And I said, uh, I talked about my humble beginnings and how I'd come up, you know, because most of them are blue, had come up blue collar. And, and, I, and I said, you know, I worked on the railroad. I worked running a jackhammer. I've, you know, I worked at United Parcel Service. I've done almost every blue collar job you can imagine. And I even had my own carpet installation business. I said, and I talked a little bit about that. But I said, when I got to the other side of the desk and I started l- looking for uh, hiring people. And I said, you guys are looking for jobs and you're interested in jobs. I said, I want to tell you something, you know, whether you're a welder or a computer software programmer, I said, only 30% of what I'm looking for as an employer is in your skill set. And in a lot of cases, I am happy to provide you with the skills that I need. What I can't provide you with, or what I can hope to help, help you along the line, is your character. Do you see the class as half full or half empty? Do you see problems as something to get depressed about or as opportunities? Do you like to see other people succeed or are you jealous of their success? Do you promote other people or you like to tear other people down? Are you the kind of person that talks behind people's back? Are you the kind of person who's always trying to find out who's making more money than you are and, 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 and causing trouble over it? Or, or are you the kind of person that always wants to pitch in, that sees something that needs to be done and just goes ahead and does it? Are you the kind of person that's the first one in and the last one out? You know, these are the, are you goal oriented? Are these the kinds of things that are so important? These are the things that you, you pick up through this transformational journey. And these are not skills. These are, these are the way you, you know, um, you know, it's father Christian who I quote extensively in the book. He said to me one time, all you remember, all philosophical problems are at heart moral problems. It all comes down to how you intend to live your life. And I just, uh, it, to me, if, if I had a class that said Determination 101, come to this class and I'll teach you how to be a determined human being, nobody would come. <laughs> but if it's computer models to pick stocks 101, I'll get a thousand people to come to that. <laughs> people want skills, but they don't understand how important the overall values are. 
Augie, I have a couple of questions I want to ask you, not directly related to the book. But before we go there, is there anything else from the book that you'd like to make sure we take away from this conversation? Well, you know, I think there's only one other thing that I would say, which gets back to your previous question that you just, what is the most important? One of the foundational principles that I've learned about business and, and especially from the monks is have a higher purpose. What is, you have to aim past the target in life. You know, one of the quotes that, uh, that, I, that I put in the book is, don't concentrate on being good at business. Concentrate on aiming past that target. Concentrate on being good at life. And if you're good at life, then you're going to be automatically good at business because it's going to be a byproduct because it's a subset of life. And so the problem is, is that Father Chris Francis used to tell the monks, your God is too small. In golf, we're told to aim for the back of the cup. In basketball, for the aim for the back of the rim. In archery, you're taught to aim past the target. Aim at something higher than just profits. Aim at something higher than just material success. Get your, root yourself in something bigger. And I would say that should be selflessness. That's my opinion. But the more you root yourself, uh, which comes all the way back around to the fact that it is in your own self-interest to forget your self-interest. I think I heard you say it once that uh, we often tend to make profits the goal, uh, but we should make the mission the goal and the profits will take care of themselves. Going back to that, put first the kingdom of heaven. Yeah, Lewis Mobley used to say profit is not that, you know, he was dogmatic about this. Profit is <laughs> not the purpose of a business. It is not the goal of a business. A, a company must have a mission and profit is the, just the way, in, it's just the yardstick that we use to see how well we're executing against the mission. Right. When your time on this planet is through, Augie, what do you hope your legacy to be ultimately? Uh, you know, I don't really think too much about that at all. That's a really interesting question. You, you know, I think that probably the only thing that I, I would like that any of the people who remembered me to say, he was a good, decent human being, you know, that, yeah. that, that, he, that he did what he could to help other people. I, I think that's, enough, that's plenty for me. And I, I think you're doing a good job of it. Just as one person to another. <laughs> Can you name for us a couple of books you've read in the last few years that have had a great impact on you, Augie? Oh my God! Um, you know, you're uh, <laughs> you and I are on the same wave. I mean, I'm a I'm a consummate reader. I read constantly. Mm-hmm. However, I'm going to surprise you, or at least I think I'm going to surprise you because I usually do surprise people. First of all, you said you read not uh, almost all nonfiction. I read a lot of fiction. Okay. Um, and uh, so I, I was, and I even reread a lot of stuff. So frankly, I've been reading, rereading things lately, like um, Crime and Punishment, and I read a lot of Russian literature. Mm-hmm. So I read a lot of the great, uh, the the great classics. So, and the reason for that is um, not. I don't have to have a reason. I read. The reason is I love uh, classic literature. I'm not a bestseller kind of guy. I don't. I'm, I'm not always chasing uh, Robert Ludlum books. I read classics and I read the great literature. And but what I found as a byproduct of my love of literature is that I consider business to be eighty uh, percent um, people and twenty percent everything else. And through reading literature, uh, it has really helped me to become a tremendously a much better psychologist in terms of what makes people tick. And um, and and I think that has really really paid off. I read history. I read a lot of history. This is my nonfiction, mm-hmm. and I'm reading a book now on on King. King uh, Richard of Lionhearted and his and his brother Prince John. The third category of of books that I read is I read a lot of um, uh, you know just psychology and philosophy and religion um, kind of books. I'm speaking of Trappist monks. I'm reading a book called uh, 
The Dark Path by Thomas, about Thomas Merton's tar- Dark Path, it's called. It is in our own self-interest to forget our self-interest, one of the central themes of Business Secrets of the Trappist Monks, One CEO's Quest for Meaning and Authenticity. August Turek, it has been a pleasure having you on the Read to Lead podcast. Thank you for giving of your time today. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Jeff. I loved every minute. To grab your copy of Business Secrets of the Trappist Monks, to find out more about August and any of the resources and links he shared today, you can visit readtoleadpodcast.com slash August, as this is not a numbered episode. Again, that's readtoleadpodcast.com slash August. If you enjoy the podcast and have yet to leave a rating and review in either iTunes or in Stitcher, my question simply is, what are you waiting for? Are we not friends? I would really appreciate it if either in iTunes or Stitcher you could leave a rating and review like Paper Muse from Canada who says, I'm part of two personal development book clubs and this podcast is a great compliment to them and a great source for future book recommendations. Thank you very much for your five-star rating and review. Whips Castle says, for the first 50 years of my life, I may have read one or two books over 100 pages, except for maybe the Bible. I'm not a daily reader, but Jeff, your content is awesome. Great questions and guests. Helps me find books to add to the reading list. I'm so glad that the podcast is helping inform your reading. That's certainly one of the reasons why it exists, and I'm glad that you're making more time for it. We want to make that a little easier for you if we can. And August Mom C in iTunes says, I decided to listen in because I read routinely. I'm glad I did because this is a super informative podcast. The host, she says, that's me, by the way, asks uh, well-targeted questions and delivers great value in return for the investment of time. Thank you. I especially appreciate the exposure to new books and proven ideas. Awesome review. Five stars. Thank you, August Mom. If you'd like to leave a rating and review, you can do so in either iTunes at readtoleadpodcast.com slash iTunes or over on Stitcher at readtoleadpodcast.com slash Stitcher. And if you happen to think the podcast five star worthy, we'll mention you by name in a future episode as a way to say thanks like we did these folks here. I encourage you to sign up for our email list to stay up to date on all that's going on with the Read to Lead podcast. You can do that over at readtoleadpodcast.com. And feel free to email me anytime, Jeff at readtoleadpodcast.com. And if you have a question you'd like us to answer in a future episode, just go to readtoleadpodcast.com slash question. Well, that does it for this week. I look forward to seeing you next time for the Read to Lead podcast. Thanks so much for listening to the Read to Lead podcast. As a subscriber, we challenge you to be more than just a passive listener. Become a vital member of the community. Visit us on the web at readtoleadpodcast.com. Until next time, remember, leaders read and readers lead. Oh, 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 oh,